Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for doing that and sharing that with us. Really appreciate it. So as she said already, we're focusing on peace today. Our Advent focus has been hope, love, joy, and peace. And Advent literally means the arrival of an important person or event. And so Advent time, Christmas time, is saying, hey, we're going to slow down and ponder the arrival of Jesus on the scene. For us at this church this year, we've been doing that through Matthew. A couple of years ago, we looked at the prophecies of Isaiah. Some years we've looked at uh, the gospel stories of Luke. We, we go to different parts of Scripture to focus in on what does it mean that Jesus came for us, that he was born as a baby? How, how can we make sense of the incarnation, that God took on flesh in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus? This week, we're going to be in Matthew 2, verses 13 through 23. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Matthew 2, verses 13 through 23. Central to our gathering every week is we're going to unpack study, and listen to God's word, because we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. As we look at peace, it's helpful to define it, what peace means. Um, Over the years, I've defined this many times, especially at Christmas time, but in other uh, sections of the Bible where this comes up, there are two principal ways to define peace biblically. Uh, One is simply no more war, no more conflict. That's the simple definition of peace. There's a much broader definition from the Old Testament word shalom. It has a bigger sense of the way things are supposed to be. And I've jokingly referred to that as like when your kids are happy, when your friends are happy, when the sunset is beautiful, when you're eating good fajitas or good guacamole, right? It's those, those moments we get a taste of, oh, this is, what, this is what creation is supposed to be, right? We get those little tastes and then it all quickly falls apart again, right? Because we live in a broken world, a world that's been torn apart by sin. And so we're longing for that true shalom. That's that Old Testament word for peace when things are going to be webbed back together and everything's going to be right. We're waiting for that to be made right. Well, there's a third definition of peace that I want to give you. This week I thought, you know what, I need to look up like what's the dictionary definition of peace. I looked it up in the dictionary and the number one definition of peace is freedom from disturbance or tranquility, right? So that's a little more personal. That's personal peace. And the gospel also brings that kind of peace, right? So the end of war. Okay, there's no more conflict and war anymore between us and God. If God has forgiven us and taken our sins upon himself on the cross, then the war is over between us and God. And that's the beginning, the unleashing of the shalom in this world. And it's unleashed in our lives one person at a time. We bring the kingdom to bear when we love each other and when we serve and when we make our block and our neighborhood better. We're, we're beginning to bring in that shalom even while we wait for Jesus to return and wipe every tear from our eyes and give us the full shalom. But also, we can experience that freedom from disturbance. We can experience some of that tranquility here and now. We experience that by faith in Christ, the bringer of peace. As we connect with him through what's sometimes called the means of grace, as we study the scripture, we're like, oh yeah, God, you are in control. The voices in my head were like, everything's falling apart and the world is ending. But I'm remembering, you're actually in control. In the book of Daniel, we saw that where Daniel would get a vision of heaven and it would show him that God is on his throne, that God is in charge. We get that same kind of revelation when we read his word. Or when we pray, we go to him in prayer and meditation. We begin to experience internally that true peace. Well, there's an interesting accusation or prophecy made in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 
8, and this is actually repeated a couple of places. I think it's Jeremiah 8 and 6, but 8.11 is what I'm reading here, where Jeremiah accuses false teachers of preaching a false peace. And that's what we need to watch out for, right? Because our world is selling peace, right? Every commercial is saying, if you take this pill, if you drink this drink, if you buy this car, if you eat at this restaurant, if you wear these clothes, then you'll know peace. Then you'll know true tranquility. Well, Jeremiah says this, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jeremiah is saying that human beings, false teachers, particularly in this exile period, but this happens throughout history, are always saying, you don't need God. You don't need to repent. You don't need to turn to him. You can find peace in this other system, in this other place. And what I want to preach to you today, and what I think Matthew is going to support in his text, is that Jesus is the source of true peace. Everything else is, is utter craziness, right? Everything else is going nuts, going bananas. So let's read the text. It's Matthew, Matthew 2, it's 13 through 23. And I wanted to kind of give you that bigger picture biblical setup because this is a little bit of a rough story. So on a first reading, if you didn't know the rest of the scriptural context, you'd be like, Dave, this is not a peaceful passage at all, okay? So let's hear what it has to say. I need to put my glasses on first. All right. Chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, that's the wise men from last week, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee, flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead." And he rose and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let me pray and ask God to teach us from his word. God, we have an interesting story here, the final birth story in Matthew, the final Christmas story, if you will, describing the circumstances, and, and these were rough circumstances. And God, the thing I'm thinking about is, is we live in rough circumstances too. And so as we hear your word, I pray that, that our hearing would not be overshadowed by our own circumstances, that your spirit would meet us and give us a clarity to hear what you were saying in this first telling of the story what you were doing, what you were up to. We thank you that you're a God that has entered into our rough circumstances to take our sin, to give us life. And we pray that you'd help us to hear it and thrive 
in it so that we could extend your peace to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, this is kind of a peculiar story, but it's an important story. And it's interesting as well because this story is punctuated with three statements of fulfillment. We talked last week about how there are generally very clear kinds of fulfillment from the Old Testament. For example, would be the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Boom, he's born in Bethlehem. You know, that's a real clear, simple prediction, fulfillment, prophetic, like, okay, I can wrap my brain around that. And then there are these other just patterns. And that is something that if you're like me and not so smart, it's been harder for me to understand over the years as I've read the Bible. And the more I read it, the more I realize there's kind of something artistic going on here that God is giving us literary patterns or like musical patterns. And Matthew does this a lot in his gospel. He says, oh, this pattern is fulfilled. It's like this other thing that happened before. It's kind of the same, but it's different. And so we have this big picture idea with all these patterns that everything that went before was pointing to Jesus so that when Jesus comes, he might walk out a pattern that's very similar to the people of Israel or to Adam and Eve, you know, and their temptation. He does these things that other humans have done, that other leaders have done, that other priests have done, and yet he does it right because <laughs> he's perfect, right? So all the other stories were these heroes that did like three good things and then four bad things, you know, like humans that just kept failing. We just keep messing it up. We keep stumbling and Jesus comes along and he fulfills those patterns and yet he does more. He's the perfect fulfillment. He's the savior that we worship. He's God with us as we saw a couple of weeks ago. And so there are three fulfillment statements that we're going to see and I'm going to translate them for you to give you my three points about peace. And these are my three points about peace that come from the fulfillment statements. Number one, we have peace for exiles. An exile is someone that's homeless. We vary from circumstance to circumstance, feeling very at home and feeling very not at home in this world. And we're told in the New Testament that we're all spiritual exiles. Jesus brings peace for spiritual exiles. Secondly, Jesus brings peace for victims. Many of you have been hurt in terrible, terrible ways. And the gospel brings hope and peace specifically for those who have been hurt, for those who have known weeping and mourning. And then finally, the third point is peace for the unimportant, for the just kind of unimportant, forgotten little people. Jesus brings peace for the unimportant. He makes outsiders insiders. So peace for exiles, peace for victims, and peace for the unimportant. And we see this through the three fulfillments that are kind of peppered throughout this story. So let's look at the first section. Jesus brings peace for exiles. Verse 13 says, when they had departed, the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for a child, for the child to destroy him. Now, I just want to try to put you back into the, the shoes of Joseph and Mary, right? Joseph and Mary are told, hey, the Savior's going to come through your line, this promised son of David, all the fulfillments are happening, right? Remember, at that time, they thought everything. We live in between of the first fulfillments and the second you know, layer of fulfillments. We're still waiting for everything to be made perfect, but the release from sin has already been accomplished. So we live between those two big, important comings of Jesus, right? And we understand that because we live here in between. But those that were coming before, they thought it was all going to happen at once. The whole New Testament with Jesus walking around, he was like, no, 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 no. I'm not coming on the white horse to like, defeat all evil yet. I'm coming to defeat evil on the cross, and then I'll come back someday in the future and wipe away every tear and make everything perfect. 
There's going to be this long process of the preaching the gospel in a world that's still riddled with sin and disease. And we're 2,000 years into that right now. So again, put yourself in Mary and Joseph's shoes. What did they expect? They expected we're going to have the king and everything's going to be cool, right? You see this often with the disciples, right? The disciples were like, okay, Jesus, when, when you come on your throne, can I have the right-hand seat? Can I have like a little junior throne? And this guy, you know, and they were always arguing about who had the most important place. And they were fighting and jockeying for position in this political kingdom that they thought Jesus was going to bring in. Oh, Jesus is a political ruler, but he wasn't bringing it in the way they thought he was. It's still a finish that we're waiting for. But he accomplished the defeat of sin and death through his death, burial, and resurrection. So put yourself in Joseph's shoes. He's like, okay, I'm going to have to run away from my home. I'm going to have to rescue Mary. I thought, I thought Jesus was the champion. Okay. And Joseph is following orders. He's given a vision from an angel. He's told that someone wants to kill his son. He has to escape to Egypt. This is stressful. The Bible characters lived in the same kind of stressful, I don't like this kind of world that you and I live in. Do you see that? That's the same world they lived in that, that we live in. He rose, he took the child and his mother by night. They had to sneak out in the middle of the night and they departed to Egypt. Remained there until the death of Herod. And by the way, they didn't just jump in the car and cruise on the highway for two hours. You know, this is a long, dangerous journey. Verse 15, they remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And so God, multiple patterns, right? His people sojourned in Egypt. They became slaves. He rescued them. That's what the book of Exodus is all about. And then there's the secondary pattern of his people being exiled all over the world. Persian Empire, Babylonian Empire, Assyrian Empire, right? Like this is scattering everywhere and them being called out of these foreign nations to come back to God again and rescued again. Well, those are just previews. Those are trailers of the real big event, which is Jesus coming to return us from our spiritual exile. And so Matthew's saying, look, this is, this is one of those cool pattern things. This is one of those artsy fulfillments happening again here. It reminds us that Jesus is the return from true exile, that he's the true Israelite. We see in Matthew and Luke uh, the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, and we see there that he's like Adam and Eve that face temptations from Satan, but he's the perfect Adam and Eve that obeys and never sins. Here, we're being told, he's like my people Israel, my son that I called out of Israel, uh, are out of Egypt, but in Hosea, where that originally shows up, that quote we've got, originally Hosea was saying, but my people are really rebellious and terrible. <laughs> They're not obeying me. Jesus is like that, being called out of Egypt, but he's different because he's obedient, right? And so here's a really important key for this. The way that Jesus brings us back from spiritual exile is his perfect obedience, his perfect obedience. So as we think about the gospel, the most common way we talk about it, these are all true ways to talk about it. The most common way we talk about it is Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Y'all have heard that before? Whether you're new to Christianity or old to Christianity, you've probably at least heard something like that. So we would say your sins, if you trust in Jesus, can be paid for by Jesus. He takes the penalty on the cross. He takes your place. He's a substitute. And that's really at the heart of the gospel, you go out one layer, a little broader, and we often talk about the resurrection. Not only did he die for your sins, it's not just like a negative, but he rose from the dead. So when you trust in him, 
the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you and gives you his resurrection life so that when you and I die, we have this promise of resurrection as well. We've, we've seen that Jesus has defeated sin and death forever. So the resurrection is also this other layer that's really important. Well, you go a little farther out, there's this third layer that's really important, and that's what's being hinted at here. Jesus didn't fall to temptation the way we do. He actually lived a perfect life. So not only is your debt paid, your sins are forgiven, but also your, your account is credited, right? Not only are my debts paid off, but I've got a bazillion dollars. I've got the inheritance of the king of the universe who was the good son called out of Egypt. So he's fulfilling these patterns, doing things like Adam and Eve, doing things like Israel, but better. He fulfills, he obeys, he is the perfect son. Another way to think about it is this. We, we talked about this last week when he was baptized. God the Father just said, this is my son and in whom I'm well pleased, right? So here's the deal. If you trust in Jesus, when God looks at you, that's what he says to you. This is my child and you, I am well pleased. He's pleased with you. Believing the gospel is more than just believing that your sins are forgiven. That's important. It's also believing that God likes you. He delights in you. Your spiritual exile is over. You're being called to true home. Christmas is a time in our culture. I'm sure it's different in different cultures. But in our culture, being home is a big deal. A lot of you are away from home and you long for home. You miss it. Some of you, for whatever reason, can't be home. Some of you are home, and it's sweet. Some of you are home, and it's not sweet because you have bad memories, right? And other negative things that that are going along with that, right? So we all have a different mix of emotions. All that is a reflection of the reality that we don't really live in our true home yet. Our true home is heaven. We're waiting for Jesus to return and make all things right. So if you have a really good home now, that's a sweet blessing that's like a little, you know, shadow of the fullness that is to come, more than we can ask or imagine. The days when you have your good days, that shalom sense of peace I was talking about, right? The days I have really good guacamole, I'm like, wow, and heaven's going to be even better than this, right? <laughs> that's, that's the posture we should have. Uh, my kids just came home last night, and they're like, oh, so good to be home, you know, like, it's so good for us to have them home. I say some of my kids, other kids, you know, they come at different times. Some of the kids came home last night. Grandbaby came last night. So sweet to have them there, right? But that's just, that's just a little foretaste of the things to come when we will see Jesus face to face. And so he's the one that gives us that return from exile. True peace is I'm no longer wandering out on the streets, not sleeping in my own bed, but I'm, I'm home. And that home is more than the bed I sleep in in Harker Heights, right? That home is the place that promises, that Jesus promises he's preparing for us, right? John 14, he says, I'm leaving, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. In my father's house are, old King James says, many mansions, right? There are many rooms. I'm setting up shop for you. True home is with Jesus. So how do we apply the peace of an exile being returned home? Well, for one thing, you got to believe it. Trust that Jesus is the source of that peace, not the money, the entertainment, the whatever else is being sold to us second by second in this consumeristic world. Trust that it's Jesus, really. And then all those other things might be good gifts, but they're shadows that point to the true gift of true home, true return from exile with Jesus. That's 
where the real peace is. Um, there's a moving truck picture I think I grabbed off the internet here. And a lot of our community, a lot of you are military or you're friends of military or family of military. And so a lot of you have moved a million times. That's actually a gift that God's given you to remind you that this is not our true home. We're pilgrims. So the New Testament says we're sojourners, we're wanderers, we're foreigners, we're exiles. And peace, full peace can be known that day when we're with Jesus face to face. We can experience that peace now as we walk with him by faith. And we remember, Jesus, you've given me peace and the forgiveness of sin and the delight that I have with the Father right now. So help me to extend that peace to others. So first of all, believe it, know it personally. Secondly, then extend it. Do you believe it for yourself? And then how can, I, how can I share a little bit with somebody else? How can I just pass on a little peace to the next person? If I believe true peace is the return from spiritual exile I can have in Jesus, how then can I share that with somebody else? Uh, New Testament has two words for this. One is hospitality. That means loving strangers. That means recognizing I'm not really an exile because Jesus loves me. So I can love the other exiles and help them know that they're not really exiles. The second word to that is evangelism. That's where we put words to it, right? So hospitality is loving strangers, serving them. And then evangelism is saying, here's the story of why I do that. Because Jesus loved me. He returned me from spiritual exile. So I want to help you get a taste of that as well. So believe it, extend it to others through hospitality and evangelism. Peace for exiles. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The next thing that we see is peace for victims. We see this in part two, peace for victims. This part is really rough, and this has really troubled me all week. I've been praying for you and even just praying for my own words that I'd be able to say this well, but, but some of you have endured unspeakable evil, and you need to know that that unspeakable evil was evil. Um, and so there's a bigger sense in which this world is broken by sin, so everything that evil happens is a result of sin. And as Bible believers, we say that a lot. And then what can get confusing is that gets translated into our own hearts because of the condemnation of the devil as I was abused because of my sin, right? And that can just pile shame upon shame. And, and what I want you to understand is when we sin, we are responsible and we should not sin, right? But if someone did something evil to you, that was because they were being evil. And you need to clarify that in your own mind and heart. And we have a God who says, evil is evil, and I'm going to destroy all wickedness. Now, if he were to destroy it all now, we'd all be toast. And so God is both just, he will destroy evil, and he's the justifier of the wicked, Romans 3 tells us. And so God's plan is that all evil will be wiped away or it will be absorbed onto the shoulders of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? All evil will be accounted for. It will not just be swept under the rug. It matters. And God weeps with you over the evil and the abuse that you've endured. So I want you to understand that. This is a story of evil and abuse. And this story is put here, I think, to help us as hurt people, as abused people, to connect with the Bible story again. Because so often... We think of the Bible as just like floating out there in space and, and forget that these are real people like you and me that have been hurt and broken. In verse 16, it says, Then Herod, when he saw he'd been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem 
and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Many paintings of this, uh, sometimes called the murder of the innocents. It's kind of a famous artistic phrase for this story. Um, Herod was an evil king who did evil things and murdered innocent babies. And that was wrong. And if you've experienced anything like that, it was wrong. And you need to know that the God of the universe didn't just say, I'm going to fix this from afar, but he entered into this kind of evil. He was born as a baby in a world where babies are murdered. That's still the same kind of world that we live in today. And so you need to know that God was willing to step into the mess with us. And so not only did Jesus die for us, that's so important, he's our substitute, but he suffered with us. Do you see that? He suffered for us, yes. He's my substitute. He took my sin, but he suffered with me. He understands. And so that gives us the freedom to grieve, to lament. This quote, again, it's a Jeremiah fulfillment. This was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Again, it's a pattern being fulfilled. Jeremiah was like, there's a bunch of weeping. This world is messed up. That's my paraphrase. Let's read it. Matthew 2.18, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is not Rachel the person. This is really like the descendants of Rachel. These are her children descended from her. This is basically Israel has been broken and trampled on by all these evil empires that are tromping through during the exile period. And Jeremiah is like, yeah, it's great weeping and great, great horrors that are going on. And there's a fulfillment here. There's a pattern that's fulfilled. I grabbed a picture of a man crying um, because I think it's an important thing as believers, especially for manly soldiers like a lot of you are, that we would grieve, that we would lament, um, that we would say, that was terrible. And a lot of times we're afraid to, right? Because we just think I'll completely come undone. And I just want to encourage you that, that that process is important just to express it, whether that be with a friend or a biblical counselor or a spouse or a brother or sister. It's important to let that out. Um, there's, a, there's a fighting for peace for victims that is described in multiple places in the New Testament. Last week, I described it from Philippians 4, 4 through 7, where it said, rejoice. How do you rejoice? Well, you, you're gentle. You're not violent. That's what he talks about in verse 5. And then in verses 6 through 7, he goes on. He says, well, well, when you worry, don't continue to worry, but pray. Take your worries to God. Other scriptures quoted a couple other places say, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Know that God cares and give him your concerns. You might still be wondering, like, how, how do I know he really cares for me? So again, big picture, he entered into the mess with us. He took our sins upon himself, but he also suffered side by side with us. And Hebrews 4 explains it this way. Hebrews 4.15 says that he's not a high priest that is unable to sympathize with us. So sympathy, empathy, both have this connotation of, of feeling the other person's pain. People always debate exactly what those mean. But, you know, the general idea is he knows what it's like, right? He knows what it's like to be abused, to be hurt, to be a victim of evil. Jesus endured that on purpose for you and me. And that brings us great spiritual peace. So then Hebrews 4.16 says, so do something with us. Because Jesus cares for you, Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy 
and find grace to help in time of need. So Jesus has endured what you've endured. Jesus does understand the evil that you've gone through. He endured it for you. So run to him. Run to him. So again, this is a, a believing, but this is also an action in prayer and worship. We're, we run to him. My, my times of sweetest and most authentic worship are usually the times when I've had the worst week, when I just feel like giving up. And then I've built this rhythm in my life where I'm going to show up here. You know, you guys hired me, so I have to be here now. And I'm here, and I'm worse. That was a joke. I love being here. But I come, and those are important habits. I come and I sing these songs to Jesus, and I'm like, yeah, Jesus, I'm unraveling, and I'm struggling to believe any of this, but as I sing it, he helps me to believe it. You know, and I know this peace again, peace for a victim of injustice, peace for a victim of evil, and I'm able to then, through these means of grace, cast my cares on him because he cares for me. Run to this one who endured the weeping, who endured the loud lamentation, the chaos. In Jeremiah, part of the problem was the weeping and the chaos and the evil was increased because God's people did not repent. So to come full circle, some of you really need to understand that when someone did evil to you, that wasn't your fault. It was evil, right? But you also need to understand then what we commonly do as sinful people is we compound the evil. Then we turn around and we're like, the only way I can defend myself is to be evil to other people. It's the only way I can keep myself safe. And we're then keeping it going. We're multiplying it instead of running to him in our time of need and saying, Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. I just want to punch some people. Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me to trust you, to see you as the one that brings peace to the victims. Final point is that Jesus brings peace for the unimportant. This one's fascinating. This fulfillment is great. This is one of my favorite ones. We, we looked at this several years ago, and it's kind of fun to come back to it, but we'll look at verses 19 through 23. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared and dreamed to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So he's like, it's safe. You can go back to Israel. Um, it sounds like the way this is presented, he just kind of gave him general directions. Go back to your country. He didn't tell him yet which city to go back to, right? And so he's in the, the tribe of Judah. And so it seems like maybe they were headed back to Bethlehem, back to that region where Jesus was born. We don't have all the exacting details here, but it says in verse 21, he arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel, the whole land, but it says, Verse 22, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, that section of Israel where they'd been before, where the kings come from, Archelaus was reigning in place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there. Why? Because Archelaus was also evil, just like Herod. He was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. This was a more cosmopolitan place on the edge of of Israel, which is really interesting. It was a perfect setup for Jesus's ministry where Jesus was coming in to reform Israel, to help them find peace with God, but also to help them reach the nations. And Galilee was this border area where there was a lot of good Jews and a lot of pagans from the nations. It was like a mixed area. And so that's then where he ends up getting raised in the area of Galilee, the district, specifically a little town called Nazareth. Verse 23 says, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, and he would be called a Nazarene. So I think I misspoke this morning at the 9 o'clock service. I said 
This is kind of like a little unknown town, kind of like Clean. Well, no, Clean's kind of a big city. Clean's more like the district of Galilee. This would have been more like Ding Dong, right? Anybody know Ding Dong? Ding Dong's like a cafe. It used to be a town, but all it is is a cafe now. I think it used to be a gas station. It's just on the edge of Clean. I think it's actually gotten annexed by Clean now. Um, this is like an unknown, kind of ridiculous, out in the sticks, nobody's heard of it town. That's where Jesus grew up. Doesn't that make you feel better about yourself, right? All you guys like me that grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, that grew up in the wrong family, that maybe was unimportant in many ways, Jesus comes and he brings peace for the unimportant. He, he carries our unimportantness on his own back. He lives an unimportant life for us. It's like on the one hand, he's the greater king of David, you know, son of David that we've all been waiting for, born in Bethlehem in the line of the kings through the genealogy of Judah. Like he fulfills all that. He's raised out in the sticks. So that in John 1, the the kid's story, right? John 1 and 2, the disciples are coming to Jesus and one of them's like, what good could come out of Nazareth, right? (laughs) Like that's the armpit of Israel. How could anything good come out of there? And here again, Matthew is saying, this is a pattern. What's the pattern? It was what was spoken by the prophets that might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Well, there's no direct quote in the Old Testament that says this. This is a pattern fulfillment, not a word-for-word fulfillment, okay? Like I said, two kinds of fulfillment in the Old Testament. Word-for-word, like he's going to be born here, boom, he's born here. And then there's like patterns, right? The clearest explanation of this pattern is Isaiah 53. A lot of people love Isaiah 53 because it's so clear hundreds of years before Jesus was born. That's talking about Jesus. It says he's going to be rejected by men. He's going to be this unimportant person. He's going to be this outsider that's despised, right? That's what Isaiah 53 says about the suffering servant, the Messiah that would come. He would endure great difficulty to bring us peace. Another interesting little clue in this is that the Hebrew word nazar means stick or branch, and Isaiah 11.1 1 prophesies, you know what? I've punished Israel. I've exiled Israel. I've chopped down the tree, right? But a little branch is going to pop out from that stump. A branch is coming. A little stick is going to come and bring hope. It's not going to look like much. It's going to seem unimportant. Over the pandemic, I've tried a lot of gardening. I've been trying to get avocado trees going because we eat guacamole like it's going out of style, right? Like we love avocados. I want to get my own like avocado orchard in my backyard. I've had a lot of trouble. I think I've killed three avocado trees now, but I was just checking them out the other day and one of them, dead tree, a little branch is coming out, a little, little sprout is coming out from the roots again. I'm like, that's, that's like the branch of Jesse. Jesse was David's father, right? So it's, it's a way of referencing like in this line of kings, it's been chopped down. Israel's been punished. Israel's been exiled. They failed. Yet God is saying, by my grace, I'm still going to fulfill something. It's going to be this unimportant little stick that's going to shoot out. And so we see Jesus knows what it's like to be unimportant. So Nazarene could be translated as like stick. It implies poetically this unimportantness. It kind of points to this branch coming out of a dead stump. It, it It points to all this stuff. So he's saying the prophets are being fulfilled here. All kinds of prophecies are coming together when Jesus grows up out in the sticks, when he grows up in this weird little town that nobody cares about. That's a fulfillment for us. That's Jesus, again, taking our place. So again, repeatedly, we've said, 
Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the source of this peace for you in your life? If you believe it, then you will know that dictionary definition of peace to some degree of being without disturbance, right? That kind of tranquility. We only know it in moments. We only know it in these little moments where we cling to Jesus by faith. As we read his word, as we pray and meditate, as we sing songs to Jesus, we, we feel it. It's more present with us. When the Holy Spirit stirs our heart to cry out, Abba, Father, to run to God with our concerns, to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. Those are those moments we know that kind of moment-by-moment peace and tranquility. Not every moment is tranquil. I want to encourage you to continue to fight for that peace, just as we talked last week about fighting for joy. Philippians 4 lays out a game plan. It says, don't keep worrying. Don't stay anxious. When the anxiousness comes, don't just live in it, but pray. Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. Recognize that he's the God who has endured every kind of weakness and temptation that we've gone through, yet he's done it without sin. So he knows what it's like to be unimportant. He knows what it's like to be a victim. He knows what it's like to live the life of an exile, running from place to place, not really knowing true home. And he brings us peace because he overcame all those situations for us. He's the one, he was the one that lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He died a sacrificial death that we deserved to die, and he rose from the dead, proving that he's conquered sin and death once and for all. Jesus says in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I quote that verse a lot. Right before that, at the beginning of the verse, he says, I've said these things to you so that you will have peace. And then we have to move back a little more and go, well, said what things, Jesus? He told his disciples, things are gonna get crazy. The disciples experienced what we're experiencing now, 2,000 years later, that Jesus hadn't made all things right yet. What he had made right is the most important thing. He'd made our relationship right with God. And as we're sharing that, Peter says God is patient and he wants us to share that with more people. He's giving more people time to repent, not to perish and to be made right with him, to know personal peace with God through the gospel. As we're sharing that, we're extending his peace and we wait, Romans 8 says, groan and long for him to come back and finish what he started. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the peace that you give us in Jesus. Help us to believe it. Help us to fight for it by faith, through prayer, through Bible study, through worship. And help us, God, to extend it. We feel so overwhelmed at the end of 2020. It's been such a crazy year, but we believe that you are still on the throne, as we saw in Daniel. We believe that you've established your peace by coming for us through the cross and resurrection. Help us to trust you and help us to extend your peace to others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.